the role that is missing in the vast, vast, vast majority of organizations is the role that opens the conversation, that provoker role that I know my world extraordinarily well. And I know your world in this area better than you do. So you can talk to me and I will know you better than you know yourself. And I will change how you think about something. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. Mike, have you been to a barber recently? I was, man. Today, cut it short. Well, you know, it's getting close. Daylight savings time starts on Sunday. Oh, I'm not ready for daylight saving time. I'm really? Oh, I think every, I think, I think it should always just be daylight standard, whatever the end of it. Cause I think. The well, I agree. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't flip and flop. I, I totally agree with that. But the longer days are just. Well, hold there's on a nothing second. Hold on a second. Going outside. The, six the length of the day is well, not, not impacted not by. Right. Right. Agree. But to be able to go outside, it's, it's still light at, six, seven, eight o'clock at night is very. Well, well, you're, see, I used to be like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I used to tell people I'm a consultant. I get up at the crack of noon, but that's not really the truth. I actually get up and I know you do too. I get up early and, and, you know, we're just beginning to, you know, I'm up, the sun's coming up less than an hour and I actually feel like, Hey, it's, you know, and now it's going to be back to, so I actually, I, I liked it better. Um, man, this, whatever my green screen effect here is, it has just gone to the, to the birds. Um, <laughs> You're I, in the I, I like, I like, it's exactly right. Where's, where's the blue pill, man? <laughs> I want the blue pill. <laughs> screw, screw the, or the red, whichever one lets me be in. Yeah, the blue pill sounds a little too hot. <laughs> Whichever one, which, yeah, well, there we go. All right. How about yeah. that? Okay. So already, already I, going down the bad path. I, I, I like, I like day, daylight saving time when it was later. Like it used to be the end of March, even in April, if I remember. Yeah. 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 Cause it's still, it, it, it's still getting sunny too late for us to now push it back. I mean, how the sun's not going to be up till nine o'clock in the morning now. Yeah. Well, that's okay with me. Uh Plus, I got to travel. And, and not only that, we're one week. So I just closer. found out I have to get up an hour earlier on Sunday. We're, we're one week closer to. Once again, that's unaffected Sorry. by daylight saving. We would be one week closer to opening day, whether yep. it was daylight saving time or not. All right, Mike. What's on your yeah, mind? So we were, we were, yeah, we were enough of the uh, of the banter. We were just chatting, and obviously, all over Twitter and LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, you've got all these thought leaders talking about the world of sales or the world of sales reps are, are, are going away. And I, I don't disagree that it's, that the landscape is changing, but we talked about, let's chat a little bit about where we think uh, the world of sales is going to be in two, three, four, five years from now. Obviously you have no expertise in this world or in this, in this area. So I don't know how qualified we are to have that discussion. But. I'm not, I think it was Bill Gates who said, mankind has a tendency to underestimate 
not even tendency, mankind underestimates the rate of change in any 10-year period and overestimates the rate of change in any two-year period. Yeah, it was something that's, like that. I think that's a, um, a wise thing. So um, where do I think sales is going? Well, here's well, – so I got well, two thoughts. We can, we, can do it, we, we can do it two ways. One, we can talk about where it's going to be in five years, or we can talk about what's shifting, what's changing, and then eventually where we'll be in five years. So, so I, I, I think, so there's a couple of things, right? I think first off, let, well, let's deal with this whole sales is going away. I, I, perfect. And, and we both know somebody who says customer success is your sales team of tomorrow. And then they say sales is going away. And I want to say to him, but that conflicts what you just said. Yep. Because you said customer success is my sales team of tomorrow. So you can call them whatever the hell you want. If you tell somebody that their job, that, that, that a major metric of their job is going to be based on revenue growth. And they're responsible for getting people to spend more money. That that's, they're going to be judged on that. You can call them whatever you want to call them. They're salespeople. Yep. Okay. Um, and, and, and not only that, let's, let's look at the past, call it 10 years, 10 years would, or call I got it, last 10 years. I got a, got a, got into sales 16, 16 years ago. Although I did sales when I was in high school and college. Um, you were in essence, a sales rep. That was your title sales representative. Then it became account executive. <laughs> it became, well, you know, well, then everyone, everyone stopped being a sales rep because sales was a bad right. word. It's like, hey, let's right. call you. I'm a solution design engineer. Right. I'm a sanitation engineer. Um, it, Atlassian claims to not have sales reps. They, they just have a different title. Or, or, or we've eliminated all salespeople, right? Because you now are all channel. Right. We have no salespeople. <laughs> The so, so, so you, you got, I'm going to take you way back to an early podcast. Remember when we talked to Derek? Yes. Wozniak or Derek. Uh, I can't pronounce it. Okay, yeah, I can't pronounce He wishes. He wishes. Um, I'm sure he's doing well, but he wishes it was Wozniak. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, when, when, when you read a lot of these people that are predicting the end of sales, what, what comes closely behind that is people don't trust salespeople anymore. And then what comes closely behind that is, well, if you get a commission because you, because someone bought something then, right? And so there's this, there's this myth and I want to emphasize myth that the commission is the problem, right? That, that, and, and so I have had somebody say, not the person we were referring to, but I had, I've had somebody say, um, well, the difference is salespeople get a commission and this role won't get a commission. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. If you have one customer success person who, who is growing revenue, 
and one customer success person whose revenue is decreasing, and that happens over a sustained period of time, do both of those do both of them have a job two years later, and do both of them get paid, get paid the same two years later? Oh no 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 no! If if they can grow revenue, then 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 we would have to replace them. Okay, then then their compensation is what. Right. And so the reason that salespeople behave as badly as they behave, and let's be candid, they behave like shit. Salespeople, by and large, and I hate to say this, it pains me to say this because I am. When people say, what do you do? I say, no, no, not what do I do? What am I? I am a salesperson. That's what I am. Everything that I've done is, is because I was given the brain of a salesperson. Right? That's how I see things. So it pains me to say this, but salespeople suck today. A, I, I forget, I always think of this movie and I can't remember the name of the movie where someone said, you know, it was a lawyer and they said, what did they, did they not teach law the day you went to law school? Right. And, and it's like, there's a whole bunch of salespeople that it feels like no one ever taught sales the day they went to sales school. Right. And, and so, and, and by the way, I don't blame the salespeople. I blame <laughs> I blame their managers and I blame the executives, but, but salespeople by and large suck today because they don't listen. And when I say, listen, I don't mean you have two ears and one mouth. I mean, they don't listen for what contextually to understand the situation, to, to realize things, but, but it has nothing to do with commission. Nothing might be a slight exaggeration. Now, now, by the way, commission is a signal, right? Because the way you the way you compensate somebody, if I give you a commission, I am saying this is important, right? Now, and 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 so if you change the commission, you will change what people sell, but but that's because you change the signal, and the problem is the thing that actually drives behavior happens to occur at the same point that commissions occur. And that thing is, is the measurement, right? What's the metric, right? And the metric is sales, number of sales, number of new sales, revenue, whatever it is. You don't get, you don't get on president's club trips because you have high NPS. (laughs) you don't you don't get on you don't make chairman's club because you did a really good job making sure that we didn't sell the wrong thing to the wrong person you don't you don't win the incentive because your new revenue churn is lower now now you might get fired because of high churn but to the rep, that's, that's an after the fact thing. Because if I don't jam the sale in, I'm going to get fired anyways. Regardless. Absolutely. And so the scoreboard is close sales. That's the scoreboard, right? That's how, that's how we measure. That is what we define as the endpoint. Now, salespeople have a major problem. Lots of people have a major problem, but salespeople have a major problem. This is probably true more than just them. But when you talk about a sale to a salesperson, the problem is 
there's only two points that are clearly defined in a salesperson's head. Do you know what those two points are? The two points that are clearly defined in a salesperson's head. I, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe introduction and decision. The beginning and the end. Yeah. They know when they start and they know when it's done. That's all they know. That's all that's clear, right? Everything else is bullshit in terms of how it's actually managed in most organizations, right? You know, you take a look at, at the pipeline distribution of, of a rep's pipeline. You go into Salesforce, you look at their pipeline distribution. Do you know who that pipeline distribution was done for? It was done for their manager. It's how they manage yeah. their manager. Right. Don't get, don't get managed, manage your manager. Exactly. It's like, oh shit. Yeah. I don't really have enough end stage opportunity. Yeah. This is end stage. I'll throw that in end stage. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what, anybody that, anybody that where, if the sales is responsible for putting an opportunity in a stage in your pipeline report, then I, the, the only thing I can yeah. tell you is it's not accurate. And that's not a statement. That's not, that's not a statement against the salesperson. So, so because of the measurement, and the measurement occurs when the commission occurs. So you get distinction without difference. It doesn't matter that it's not actually the compensation. But if you were to change the measurement, if you were to change where the metric was, you would find out that the compensation is nowhere near the driver that we think it is. And by the way, Daniel Pink, who got roasted um, when he came out with a book that, 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 that talked about this and talked about what actually motivates people, um, demonstrated, you know, brought, brought the research out that showed that the compensation doesn't actually motivate. And by the way, I don't even need to know Daniel Pink's book. I don't even know the research because think about most salespeople that you know, how many salespeople do you know where, and they're good salespeople and they're making good money, by the way, which is another interesting thing about salespeople, right? I remember, I'm sorry, I'm getting off on a tangent, but remember, remind me to come back to, um, um, to, to the Daniel Pink and, um, and, and, and the motivation part. And, and salespeople who should be making more money. When I, when I was at Merrill Lynch, I, I learned an interesting story. Our, our district director was at a meeting of, of leaders of, of companies. And, and they were all talking about compensation and motivation and things like that. And people were, were saying, you know, well, we try to get them to here and how we use that as a carrot, et cetera. He said, I have a different problem. He said, the average income of my sales team, of the brokers in, in his division, in, in his office, was $250,000 a year. And this would have been back in the 1990s. $250,000 a year was the average. Yeah. And he said, the problem is when you're making $250,000 a year for, for the vast majority of these people, because by the way, remember, to be a stockbroker, you need no actual specific training. It doesn't, you don't even need a college degree. Um, it's not like you're some finance major, this or that. And, and, and so if you take a look at, actually one, I knew a guy, he was making 800 grand a year. He had been at Merrill Lynch for like nine years. Guess what job he had? And he was, he went to Merrill Lynch when he was in his mid twenties, did not have a college degree. Guess what his job was? before he went to Merrill Lynch? Probably, I don't know, maybe blue collar, you know, something. He worked on construction sites. He carried the steel rebar. That was his job. He carried the rebar to the people who needed to put the rebar wherever they needed to put the rebar. He didn't even get to put the rebar anywhere. <laughs> right? He, he just carried. He, he was, he was the mule. 
He was the mule. He was a mule. Right. That's what he used to say. He said, I was a mule. That's what I, that's, I said. What did you do before you came to our lunch? I was a mule. What, what do you mean by that? Right. And why? Because he was the young, strong guy. Right. Do you know what a shit job carrying steel rebar is? Right. He was carrying steel rebar eight to 10 hours a day. He was making 40 to $50,000 a year. He's now making $800,000 a year. And what the district director said, for the vast majority of the people on my floor, they're making a quarter million dollars. And for each one of them, they're all making more money than they ever thought they would make. And he said, it's a really interesting motivation issue when people are making more money than they ever thought they were going to make. And so you're making $300,000, but you could make $600,000. It's really hard to motivate you. Like the carrot of making $600,000 is clearly not working. Yeah. Which brings me back to the point of how many times do we see a set? How many times have we seen a rep where we've said, if you would just do what you know works, you'd make more money. Well, if they were motivated by making, like we all know, if you spent more time prospecting, you'd make more money. What's the first thing salespeople stop doing when they begin to get successful, when their pipeline begins to stop prospecting? They stop prospecting, right? Well, if they were motivated by money, they would not stop prospecting because when they prospect, they make more money. The money has nothing to do with it, right? It's the winning. It's the feeling like I'm successful. It's the self-satisfaction. And that's basically what, what the pink research show. So again, because, because we make you feel like shit, if you don't close business and we make you a hero, if you do close business. And by the way, how many sales meetings talk about how Jimmy over there closed $3.5 million. And, and he is the hero, right? Judy, she closed half a million dollars. She barely has a job. Jimmy's got 90% churn. Yep. Judy's got 2% churn. Who's more valuable to the business? Judy. When is Judy ever brought up at, does Judy ever make club? No. Does, does the. Yeah, Judy, Judy's fighting for her life every day. Judy's like, fighting for so for all this, churn doesn't matter. Churn doesn't matter. Bullshit. Right? Because that's what we measure. And so remember the days you kind of got into sales by accident. Did you ever do like the, the, the big traditional sales training expos, like the Tom Hopkins, Brian. No, Yeah, no. I read and listened to a lot of their books. When I first got into sales, I read a lot of their books, listened to a lot of their um, content. Remember when, I mean, shit, you were alive when they had eight tracks. I mean, I had, when I was super little, I listened to eight tracks, but that was probably like in your days of college. So I was uh, talking to Justin. And when I would drive around from meeting to meeting, I would listen to folks like Jeffrey Gittimer and, you know, pick off, <laughs> pick off little pieces. I was talking, I was talking to Jess today and she says, um, she's like, I'm just glad when I was in high school, they didn't have Facebook. She goes, they didn't even have MySpace when I was in high school. She said that. They didn't even have MySpace. I'm like, just they didn't even have the internet when I was in high school. What do you like? I didn't have I they didn't have they didn't even have MySpace. I'm so old. They they, didn't they, yeah, they didn't have they didn't have email when I was in high school. Yeah. So well, they had it. They they even had they, they even had eight tracks when, when the Unix terminal terminal. When yeah. they when they, they even had eight tracks when you were alive. Fuck you, Mike. I, no, I, I I said when I was a little kid, but I don't I really remember. I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't a little kid when they had eight tracks. I know. Yeah. So fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Artie, 
Um, so b- back on point. So do you remember we got told the way, you know, you have to ask somebody, but you have to close five times on average to get somebody to buy. Remember that? Yep. Was that Tom Hopkins? Tom Hopkins used to teach. He said, he said how do you learn how to close? By doing it a lot. He said, closing is like voting in Chicago. Close early and close often. I was taught, I was taught, close as early as you can. Get the first one out of the way. Like, hi, nice to meet you. Would you like to buy? They're, yeah, you should ask that because maybe they do. All right. Now, um, if you remember uh, Neil Rackham, did you ever read Rackham stuff, Spin Selling? Uh, not, not much, but I, I know. That's, uh, that's I, because I I'm a data-driven, data-backed guy. Yeah, you just yeah. kind of got I, I know. So, Yeah. So you know what Rackham is actually famous for? I mean, Spin Selling, that Huthwaite, Huthwaite was like the first real sales research company in history where they actually did real legit research. Um, and, and, and Huthwaite research showed that the whole five times to close was, was totally bullshit. And it was, um, you know, all kinds of bias to, to, to the research, et cetera. And, and basically what, you know, when, when I grew up in sales, when I first got into sales, closing was considered the most important thing. We still, by the way, you know, we, that, that's still, that's still present. Like we haven't killed. Oh, it's present, yeah. It's present in a, in a very big way. Because what do we call our best salespeople? They're, he's a closer. Like, what's the biggest compliment that you can have if you're a salesperson among salespeople? What is the biggest compliment you can get? He's a closer. Right? We've all seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yep. Coffee's for closers, right? And so closing was the most important thing. Because someone said, hey, you know what I noticed? I noticed people don't buy often unless you ask them to buy, unless you close. So closing must be really important. And, 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 and our first data-backed assumption got blown to hell. Um, coincidence, not, not causation, right? Not even quite, you know, because they happen so closely together. So it's not even correlation. I forget what that's called. Oh, my God, my mind's going blank. But when it's, it's – you know, because this happens, then that happens. We just assume that's the cause, that's the effect, right? And, and Huthwaite demonstrated that that wasn't there. And now the vast, vast, vast majority of people will agree um, that closing's not the issue. I mean, I, I, when I first started doing real sales training, I was, I was controversial and, and unique because I said, if you think you have a closing problem, you don't have a closing problem. Closing is never the problem. It's, always, it's only a symptom of a problem that occurs earlier in the sales cycle. And when I first said that, that was heresy that was against everything that people were being taught everybody had ever learned it, it, now yeah, right. i can't remember the last time i don't even say it anymore because people look at me like well duh of course even though they don't behave that way we've at least intellectually adopted that right but we still measure exactly the same way we did when when we thought closing was the most important thing yep challenger sale comes out right so, I, you know, there was the spin research. And by the way, see, spin got fucked because people took spin and they started calling it a sales methodology and sales process. And, and that's not what it was. All spin was, was the result of a research project that showed that these types of questions have impact and these types of questions don't. That's all it was. And then people, so they could start charging for it and 
creating thought leadership. But what, so the spin research was the first monumental piece of research into what really led successful sales. Um, and then the challenger research was probably the second next major true legitimate research study that was done. Um, and we found that, you know, relationship sales was not what drove. And <clears throat> we needed a different type of person and, and all those things happened, right? And people began to say, we're doing challenger or we're doing our modification or, or whatever. And, you know, I used to say that, that we sell exactly the way we did 40 years ago, but that's not true anymore. We don't sell exactly the same way. I think, you know, I used to get to say that if you were Rip Van Winkle and you woke up today, if you walked into the finance department, the operations department, the manufacturing floor, you'd be like totally freaked out. Yeah. Marketing, marketing, you'd begin to go, well, it, I mean, I kind of, some of this is familiar, but it's really crazy with all this digital stuff. But hey, go into the sales department and you will feel like you've never left. That's not true anymore, right? But you know what is true? If you looked at the dashboards, if you looked at the metrics, if you looked at the keyboard, key, the KPI, if you looked at the scoreboard. It'd all be the same. It's the exact same. We're still measuring, rewarding, training, teaching, praising to the same metrics. Like when manufacturing went through a major revolution in the 80s and 90s, we fundamentally changed what we were measuring. But we haven't changed. We haven't fundamentally changed what we're measuring. We fundamentally changed in manufacturing what we measured as important, right? And and you and I are both big fans of Moneyball, right? And what was the theme of Moneyball? Identifying metrics that no one else was paying attention to, that had true causal relationship and were undervalued, and I and identifying the metrics that everyone overvalued that they worshipped. They were overvalued because they didn't have the causal relationship, right? And so it wasn't that average doesn't matter at all. It was that what someone is willing to pay for a high batting average, when it's really an on-base percentage that we care about, when it's really a balls in play percentage that we care about, and those were two metrics that were not valued, right? You would, you would pay far more money for the person hit, who hit 290 with a 320 on-base percentage than you would for someone who hit 260 with a 380 on-base percentage, right? Yep. Pay far more money for the first. And now, now today that would be like people go, well, that's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid now that you realize it. But, and of course, you know, that, that's led to all kinds of changes. So again, we've, made, we, we've realized that the situation is different, that the nature is different, but we haven't changed our fundamental metrics. All right, so let's go back 30 years ago. What was the number one value? What was the central value that a salesperson brought to the table? Do you want to guess or you want me to tell you? Uh, well, I was, 30 years ago, I was 11 at the time, but uh, probably, it's, you know, if you look back then, their black book, I don't know. What, what... Their black book? They knew everybody. They had answers to questions. If you had a question, the best person to ask was a salesperson. I used to teach in my first sales training and first sales coaching programs, we used to teach a tactic called the value net. Do you know what the value net was? It was mm -hmm. know everybody. Know who does what in anything that could impact the people that you're trying to sell to. You want somebody, 
somebody needs insurance, know the right place to go for insurance, even though it never ha- has nothing to do with you, because you want to be the guy that has that has answers. You want to be the central the central point of answers. Absolutely. When someone has a question, go, hey, let's just call let's call Frank, our sales guy. He like knows he knows everybody. Let's call Frank. Because if you know, he doesn't know the answer all the time, but if he doesn't know the answer, he's gonna know somebody that does. Right? Now when you have a question, what do you do? www.google.com right hey Siri. however however it, it, it depends on what i'm looking for it does not depend it does if, if, I, if i'm looking to for something more high dollar yeah i might do some research on it but then i might call the guy that knows everybody that can put me in touch with somebody that is good at that particular job You're not calling a salesperson. You're not calling your um, you're not calling your insurance rep to right, say, right. "Hey, well, I got a question about uh, who do about you know good at like enterprise it. computing." Right, right, right. right. Okay, I'm I'm not saying humans don't matter. I'm I'm just saying right. that that's I mean, salespeople were Google. That's what we were. Yeah, yeah, that is fair. And, and you see, our job was to communicate value because no one else had the mag- – I mean, why, why were salespeople outside? Why were they in the field? Build relationships and, 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 and get to know other people in the Bullshit. industry. Bullshit. Okay, you tell me. Because that was how we communicated. Right, we didn't have okay. an option. Right, face to face. Yes. Okay. Right. Right. So, so putting you in the field meant we saved travel costs because the phone couldn't do the job. Right. And and how when sales really first started, there wasn't a phone. Okay. And and so we had we had to have you close, and your job was to communicate. So value. Value was designed here and it was communicated there. The problem now is that there's no value in that, right? And, and we've all gotten more sophisticated and we realize that, but we still haven't changed our metrics. So now I'm going to get to the single biggest change that's going to happen, I think, over the next five years. Who's the salesperson that get, gets paid the most money in a sales organization? Um, let me say this. Who is the top quartile, top 20% rep? What's their fundamental, what, what drives their compensation? Top 20% rep, the closer, right? Who is the lowest paid top 20% rep? The opener. I, I love this. I see it all the time. I actually called somebody on it. On, I'm not going to call it his name, but I called him on it on LinkedIn. Being a sales development rep is the hardest job in business. I said to him, I said, why, why are you pandering? I hate it when people say sales development rep is the hard. I hate it when salespeople say, when, I'm sorry, when people say that sales is the hardest job in business. It's the hardest job, right. You know what's harder than selling? There's a lot of jobs that are harder than Carrying steel rebar. That's yeah. harder than selling. Right? Being on the front lines in the military. That's being harder on, than being, uh, Damn right. 
being an, a neurosurgeon is harder than selling. Um, Wrong. Why? Well, I, if I, I just screw up, I, I'm going to kill somebody. And then I, I'm going to get sued and then my life is over. Hold on. Hold on. Being a neurosurgeon might be a rarer talent. But I learned something because I used to think the same thing. And I actually finally met somebody who actually understood neurosurgery. And you know what he told me? He said, all a neurosurgeon is, is an auto mechanic with amazing hands. Good point. Right. That they don't actually know shit. Being the general practitioner is actually a harder job than being the neurosurgeon, especially on the operating. Like, like, no offense, but Ben Carson, Ben Carson is amazing because his, his hands do not shake. Yeah. Right. That, because by the way, if you've ever heard him talk about anything else, I don't have to say anything else. Right. Well, I'm going to put it on right there. Right. Okay. And he was like the best of the best. So anyways, um, you have to put up with lots of rejection. So what? And, and I said, as look, if, if, if being a sales development rep is the hardest job, then why do they get paid the least? Because we want to blow smoke up your ass when we're recruiting, make you feel really good. Because we know you're 22, 23, 24 years old. And if we tell you that you are just a stud, we love you so much, then you'll work with you. You'll work for options in a company that has like a 0.00001% chance of ever doing anything that will cause those options to have. And we'll give you a million options so that on paper it feels good, but we've actually diluted the shares to where number outstanding is five billion quick did you see that lyft not a single founder has even one percent of lyft yeah it's, it's crazy oh anyway all right so here's the thing about sales so second thing before i get to my 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 big reveal we gotta stop talking about sales as as a singular thing right? Because there's sales means lots of different things, right? So if you're a customer success person, by the way, if you're a customer success person, as opposed to a customer service person, do you know what the difference between those two jobs are? One's a salesperson and one's not so much. Yeah. Right. Because if you're customer success, you probably have a revenue number tied to what you're doing. Customer service is you take care of problems, you take care of issues. Customer success is you are here to drive greater lifetime value. You're here to reduce churn. You're here to get upsell. You're here to, right? right absolutely. Right. Right. You can't do those That's things. A, We're sorry. You are. You, you know what those positions used to be called? They used to be called account managers. Yeah. That's what they were. Now they're customer success. So, so years ago, I actually said there's four distinct sales roles. And you could probably break it down further, but, but at its most basic, there's four distinct roles. There is a finder, which one of the big changes that has happened with, with modern demand generation is you used to need people to do the finding. And now, you know, a lot of inbound marketing is about the finder role. It's about automating yeah, the finder role. Right. Yep. There's the role that I called the provoker. They're the ones that create, they're the ones that, that bring insight, what we talked about in our last podcast. They're the ones who create the insight, right? My definition of a great salesperson is, and always has been, since I've had a definition of a great salesperson, is someone who can sell when there's nothing to buy. Now, people misunderstand that. They think it's kind of funny, 
right? Because it's kind of, it sounds kind of like a great salesperson is someone who can sell ice to Eskimos. Now, did you know, I've had some people say you could sell a refrigerator to an Eskimo. And my response is always, that's actually a very easy sale. Yeah. Do you know why? Because you don't want everything to freeze. Exactly. Right? It's the exact opposite. See, there's always. Right. <laughs> right. So, so that, um, that, that role, it doesn't even always have to be a person. But that role that causes someone to, to, to get the oh shit moment. Right? Oh shit, we need to think about this. That's the provoke role. Which, by the way, the CEB research with the challenger research actually defined that as the challenger. That's the challenger role. Then the third role is the engager. That's the person that gets it across the finish line, that manages the process of the sale. And then there's the expander. That's the account manager. That's the one that works post-sale to keep and expand, right? And there's four distinct roles. They're all sales, right? And so you say sales... Salespeople won't be around. Well, well which, which, which of those roles won't which, be around? Which of those roles won't? Right. Now, we pray to the altar of the closer. You, you recall, and I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, um, but you recall, we, you and I have talked about the, the role of, of intent, right? And, and, and by the way, what is happening more and more and more, take a look at all of the AI that's out there. Mike, I'll explain what AI is when we're all I mean, I, yeah right I'd, I'd appreciate that i'm not talking about alan iverson i know um if you look at the the role of of sales and marketing ai today i mean tell me if you disagree with this because you do know this space better than i do i, I would say 90 percent or more is all about addressing solving and automating the post intent yes Right. It, the cause of a sale is intent. There's, there's the old story. This is what's happening to too many sales organizations, right? The, the French radical who saw his followers all of a sudden jump up and they started running off somewhere. And he said to the person that he was talking to, oh, I've got to go. I've got to find out where they're going so that I can lead them. <laughs> right. And, and that's what we're doing, right? That's what sales or that's what sales increasingly uh, is becoming. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Let me find out what you want so I can lead. Right. And so intent is, is really the major cause of sales of, of a sale. Right. Once there's intent, things get pretty predictable. Yeah, it's, absolutely. There's Wait. a lot less. Yep. I'm going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. I, I was going to say there's a lot less. Uh, there's a lot less that you can do to uh, provide insights where you you can provide more influence, but. Right. But, and there's also only, once you have intent, you're now in a decision yeah. tree. Yeah. And, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're closer to this stuff than I am. Traditional automation, AI automation, at the end of the day, it's all just dealing with massive decision trees. It's just automating yeah. decision trees. Right. Yep. Right. There's an underlying decision tree. 
Well, once there's intent, now there's a decision tree that begins to be formed. And it's going to get automated, right? And that's all most salespeople actually do. As a matter of fact, I think, and I've seen a little bit of research, but I think the I think more salespeople have sales occurred despite them than because of them. I would absolutely agree with that. Right. And and so like I know the vast majority of SaaS purchase experiences, which is where I spend more of my time. Yeah, get me off the phone with this person. I'm ready to buy. Like, just get out of my way. Well, I mean, I, I got a situation with a major SaaS company with one of our clients. It's like, holy cow. This could be 1,500 to 2,000 MRR for a major SaaS company. Did the rep, because he, he heard that the, you know, so-and-so was hot for, you know, he picked up what their hot button was. And so that's what he sold, but it didn't hold up to the business case and it didn't hold up to the cost and all. And, and now, and, and by the way, you know, it, it's actually going to impact something that we're working with them on. Um, and I'm like, Holy cow. And, and what, what is horrible is after this, after conversation we just had with them, they're probably going to go ahead and move forward. Their, their comments to us, by the way, was, well, why didn't the rep tell us about any of this? I'm like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> the sad thing is, He's still, getting, he's still going to get the commission. He's still going to get the commission, right? Right. And, yeah, you're, you're right. That, that's a, right. It's a very interesting observation that I don't think a lot of people think about. Is the sale would have happened regardless of, of. And and at the very very high end of of where AI is. Once intent has formed, and, and all you have to do is, I mean, the Google experience is still, by and large, a great experience for, for most users. And it's getting better all the time. And it's funny, because as it gets better, you notice that we get less choice. Yeah. Right? That, that feeds into the we want more choice myth. Um, and, and Google does an amazing job of considering all of the possibilities and, and giving you what you want when sometimes you didn't even know. And it does it faster, better, and, and less obtrusively than any human could do. Right? Because it doesn't have its pre-idea or pre, you know, like as the salesperson, I have my intent, you have your intent. When I hear you, I'm going I'm to filter it through mine. The algorithm doesn't do that. And I'm not trying to say algorithms are, 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 are perfect for everything. But once that happens, I, I agree. That more and more, the human element becomes less and less needed. But where everyone, what everyone is missing is for some time to come, where are humans distinctly still better than computers and advanced AI? Delivering insights, which was what we talked about on, on, on last week's podcast. Picking up, picking up what wasn't said body and, language whatever it might be and and bringing a level of expertise to create an idea that doesn't yet exist mm -hmm. 
the role that is missing in the vast, vast, vast majority of organizations is the role that opens the conversation, that provoker role, that I know my world extraordinarily well, and I know your world in this area better than you do. So you can talk to me and I will know you better than you know yourself. And I will change how you think about something. And you will have an oh shit moment. And I will work with you in, in combination with some other things. I will work with you, work with your team to, to establish the criteria to cause and define intent. That is, that is the cause of sales. And no one's paying attention to it. No one's an exaggeration. Who do we have working that part of the sales process if we have anybody working that part of the sales process? In a lot of instances, it's the SDR. And if it's the senior sales rep with, with some, now, now, by the way, like I've got, I, you know, Mike Weinberg does a great job of, of talking about how individuals should sell. And I know he does a great job consulting with companies and coaching them. But the problem is, and, and it, you know, Mike's been on the podcast before. I'm going to try to get him on again. You know, wh where we disagree a little bit, like I, I think so, a lot of his message, I think his message is right on to a salesperson in today's world. I don't think it's the right message to a company that's looking to sustain growth over a 10 to 20 year period of time. And, and, and the reason is, is that I can fight the fight as an individual if I'm going to make the commitment and I'm going to do those things. But, but hiring that talent and managing that talent in a sustained fashion, it, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen at scale because there's just, I mean, one problem is there's not enough people coming into sales anymore. Yeah. Right. The smart, you, you, you get what I'm saying. I was going to say the smart people, but I, that I was a little bit too tongue in cheek and I realized it didn't, didn't hold up. But, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, here, like I came into sales, my first sales job, I was a hundred percent commission. A hundred percent. Now, if, a, if there's a salesperson who says I'll work on a hundred percent commission, I'm like, okay, there must be something wrong with you. Cause if you were any good, you'd be foolish to work on a hundred percent commission. Right. And, and, and the nature, how other jobs have happened and, you know, things like that, we've got a very different type of talent. Um, we, you know, you don't, you no longer have the person, you know what my first sales training program was? Here's the yellow pages. Here's the phone. Press nine for an outside. Good luck. Right. Let us know if you have any questions. Yeah. What should I tell them? You'll figure it out. Right. That was my, that was my first coaching session. You'll figure it out. Um, luckily they had eight tracks back then though. That you well, luckily they had eight tracks. I got and there was some sales track. coaching and yeah. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so what what's missing and, and by the way i'm seeing this in the marketing side we're like leaving that as well but once if if i can be the reason if i can be a serious contributor to you realizing that you need to do something that causes intent then i will influence your decision criteria and if i influence your decision criteria then i will then i will win more than my fair share yep I was 12 years old when I first decided I wanted to be a salesperson. Of course, I also wanted to be a sports journalist and a business owner. So actually when I went to college, I was going to be a journalism and business um, dual major. Then I saw what you got paid as a sports journalist when you first graduated college. And I said, yeah, maybe not. 
And you're not a very good writer, so it's good that you took that. Um, and and I'll never forget. I'll never forget the day that I decided I wanted to be a salesperson. And my my parents own a travel agency, and every year they would have this um, cruise show, and a cruise weekend, right? And so all the cruise, you know, different vacation, and all the cruise um, people would come in in this shitty little mall in Bowie, Maryland, um, and they'd walk around and I loved Carnival Cruise Lines and Monroe Fry. I loved Monroe Fry. And I think one of the reasons why I loved Monroe Fry is the cruise show was Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday. And Monroe never came on Sunday. Um, and after like the second year of doing this, he asked me if I would just take care of his booth on Sunday and he gave me 20 bucks. And he said, don't let your mom take it. This is for you. And so every year I got 20 and you know, when you're 12 years old back in the eight track, yeah. that was a lot of money. Right. But the other thing too, is like my, like I got to, like I represented carnival on Sunday. Right. And I'm answering, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is great. And so I started getting a little bit serious that that's when I decided I wanted to be a salesperson. Like, Hey, 20 bucks. And all I do is talk to people. This is the hardest <laughs> job in the world. <laughs> all we do is talk to people. <laughs> like, well, you deal with a lot of rejection. They hang up the phone on me. Right. Uh-uh. They don't remember who I am. I don't remember who they are. That, that's hard. I mean, I get, I get that some people can't do it, but come on. We sit in a fucking chair with a headset, talk smack to each other, dial a phone, and talk to people. I'm sorry. That does not classify as the hardest of anything. Right. Okay. Anyways, I digress. But the, the, the point being that – that was a good rant. The point being that that once once the intent once the decision criteria are defined, now you're managing process, right? That is going to be taken over more and more by automation. It should be taken over more and more. By yeah, automation. you might. It, it, it reminds me of the 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 RFP. You know, it's like the RFP is already baked. Like. I remember executives would be like, well, why aren't you responding to this RFP? I'm like, why would I even spend an inkling of a minute even reading this thing? Because it's already baked for somebody else. You want to get, get massively depressed in a rapid fashion? Read an RFP? <laughs> no. Call 20 of your companies who are all committed to growth and ask them, what are the key decision criteria? that favor them? What are the decision criteria that, that they're teaching their clients, that they're teaching their prospects? You wanna know why you'll get massively depressed really fast? At least half of them won't even know what decision criteria is. Yeah. And none of them will be able to give you a clear answer. Well, well how are you gonna make sales predictable if you're not teaching decision criteria, right? And, and now we're not, even, we're not even talking to our salespeople about decision criteria, but decision criteria, it's like, guys, that's the game. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the key, key component, absolutely. That is the game. I don't even think it's a key component. I think that is the game. I said the key component. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought you said a key, right? No, the. Hey, we're not talking about we'll pricing papers. I know. We'll have to go back to the tape. I shouldn't be. Um, I can have you say whatever I want you to say, because you've said <laughs> enough on our podcast that I can put it together and we'll be good. 
yes, I still owe you five dollars. I understand. Yeah. Um, and so the biggest shift is going to be that all of the sales resources and the most worshipped sales talent are going to go from the people who are at the end to the people who are at the beginning. And that is why if I could only use one metric, the metric that I would use, the metric that I would reward president's club, chairman's club, all of the, all of the pomp and circumstance would be meaningful conversations. And meaningful conversations has a very distinct definition. So please don't go running around saying meaningful conversation if you're not using this definition. And the definition of a meaningful conversation is a conversation where you learn something material about the prospect that enables you to personalize, contextualize, and or more effectively influence the decision criteria that they'll use towards something that impacts you. And you and they agree to do something by a certain time. Now, the material learning and the something that you do to be material, it has to increase as you get deeper into the process. So your second meaningful conversation, by definition, advances it further. So you, can, you cannot continue to have meaningful conversations and have things end with no decision. Either end with no decision or the customer or prospect not getting something out of that call, some level of an insight or something. Right, that's the... And, and now, now, by the way, you, to also for it to be material, you have to define what is it that we want to learn. So I, I ask yeah. people, so give me the profile that you use of what you need to know about a prospect to know that you're in a position that you can make a sale to. You know, the, you know what the number one answer to that is? Do, are they the decision makers? Do they have budget? I'm, 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 I'm... Well, it's different every time. That's the number one answer. Well, it's different every time. No, it's not. It's not different every time. It's the exact same thing every time. What is it? Here's the rare talent. The rare talent is, and, and this is why, if I may say, without coming across as too arrogant, this is why I'm a great salesperson. I hear what's said, but even more, I hear what's not said. And that's why I can coach salespeople, right? Um, and salespeople get really frustrated with me sometimes because they go, well, you weren't there. How do you know? I go, well, because I know if this weren't the case, you'd be saying other things and you wouldn't be saying this, right? And I learned far more, especially early. I learned far more in a sales conversation about what, from what's not said than what, from what is said. As a matter of fact, I almost, in my first conversation or two, I almost don't even care what you say. Like I have to remind myself to actually listen to what you say because I learned 10 times more in early conversations by what you don't say, Right? Great salespeople are, are naturally have, have some level of, of but, paranoia and then they can do that. They can spot what is not said. Although, although what I'll say is what's not said is not, is, I know you're busting my chop, but it's actually not driven by paranoia. It's actually, I mean, A, you have to know a lot to know what's not said. Yeah, right. Yep. Right. Well, and, and the other thing too is, 
you can do it or you can't naturally. Like I can't teach somebody how to hear what's not said. I can teach something. What is everything that we need to know so that when we don't know something that's not said. So if I can't show you what the whole picture looks like, then you can't know what the missing piece is. And so if I can't show you the whole picture and you need to figure out the missing pieces, well, then I can't scale that because that's talent. That's not teachable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you have to have a profile. You have to be able, you have to have that roadmap. You have to build these things out so that you can, so that you can measure these things. Now, the, the amazing thing is, and I, I mean, it's, it is funny because it is so hard to unteach salespeople this. It's like, I listened to the calls. I'm like, you're, you're two minutes in and you're, you're talking about how you can solve their problem. I'm like, you're trying to position a $200,000 sale here. You're two minutes in. You like, really? Do you, do you think that's like, if you were on the other side, would, well, you know, I'm trying, no, like, I said, what, what, what's the goal? What's the goal of this, of this call? They go, well, 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 we want to make a sale. I go, no, no, that's not. Remember, I said, what are you measured on? What's the measurement? Meaningful conversation. Meaningful conversation, right? And I say, what do you have to have before you can have a meaningful conversation? Do you know what you have to have before you can have a meaningful conversation? Other person pick up the phone first. <laughs> you have to have a conversation <laughs> that's not meaningful yet. Right? So my goal is to have a conversation. Right? Then I want to make it meaningful. Then I want to have a meaningful conversation. conversation. Right, conversationally. But, but if I have a good, con you know what? If I have a good conversation, it'll be meaningful. Right? And, and it's like, well, why don't, you know, it's conversational. That's, that's the hot thing right now, right? You just put but, a bot out there that, uh, that calls but, people. <laughs> right, right. Actually, I got, I'll give, you know, Mark... Killens at Drift, man, he had the greatest tweet. He had the greatest tweet last night. As a matter of fact, it's going it's to be in my blog post. Um, hold on, I got to find it because it was so good. For those of you are listening that don't know who Mark Killens is, he used to run the HubSpot Academy. Um, and then he went over to Drift to, to build out their, uh, their academy. A good conversation is a mutual exchange of information. An even balance of talking and listening. A conversation is like a friendly game of catch. That's, that's a really good definition of a conversation, don't you think? Yeah. Now, why everybody's I should, start, I, should start, I should start judging our conversations to see if they're mutually beneficial or only beneficial to you, which is usually the case. But. No, I think I do a lot of the talking, but you get the better. <laughs> I'm, I'm just I'm sitting here listening to what has not been said to figure out whether or not it was meaningful. Right. And so that's the biggest shift in sales, right? Is that is that you know the blue ocean of sales, the blue ocean of demand generation is creating demand, and creating demand is can you have meaningful conversations? Here, here's how you know if you've got the right thing, if you've got the chops, if you've got the the knowledge if you've got the content etc could you have eight great conversations with somebody before there's any need to buy now i'm not saying have eight conversations please don't our sales costs would go through the roof if we were having eight conversations no 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 here's the thing that i've learned and i know you know this 
You know, it's funny. Do you know what happened like a week before I met the person who became my wife? Hmm. I said, because I, I was traveling all the time. I'm like, screw it. I'm, I'm, I just got to, the, the whole thought of meeting somebody, getting in a serious relationship or something like that, that, you know what? I'm just, leaving that by. I have to leave just, that whatever. Well, I'll, I'll pick it up later. So I stopped looking. Right. Which really meant I stopped pressing. And then all of a sudden, a week later, I met her. When's the best time to make a sale? Right after you made one. Why? Because you need it less, right? So it's funny. The less, the less you need them to move, the more likely they will. Because here's the thing. If they don't have, if they're not feeling a problem, they're not going to do anything. Yeah, they're, they're right. Uh, absolutely. Totally and agree if they're feeling a problem and you give them the space, they're going to do something. Right. And that's where, that's where the value is. Right. And, and that's a rare talent. It's the hardest job in business. I'm, I'm kidding. It's one of the scarcest talents in business. It brings together a whole lot of things that are needed, but there, we're going to see, we're, we're going to see a shifting in, in the underlying model of companies. Right. So one of the, a great book I read was called Trade-Offs and it talks about- but, and, and again, well, let's hit on that just for a minute. Cause, but from a talent perspective, I, I, I totally agree with you. But I also think one of the reasons why those talents are lost is because of sales leadership, executive leadership and the way that companies are like, I always, myself, that's the way I kind of ran sales campaigns was, wait for them to have the problem, but be there along the way until they either identify that insight or they you, are having that problem so that they could eventually move forward. But every single week, I've got a VP of sales up my ass asking me, well, what's going on with this account? What's going on with this account? What's going on with this account? How can we make it? How can we pull it forward? How can we pull it forward? You know, those types of questions. And I think it creates some of that behavior and so what I would do is I would manage my manager and I would say, well, I, right. I would just make something up. Like, oh, well, I talked to him this week. It's just not moving fast enough. You know, well, did you talk to the customer? Yeah, absolutely. I talked to him and I, I never had a conversation with the customer. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's funny. There was a day that my goal was to be a VP of sales at Oracle. And I know you're <laughs> laughing because. Right. My wife works um, at Oracle. And I have plenty of friends that worked at Oracle. Not a, not a great, well, it, it's a full, you know, but. Well, but, but, but back in the day, yeah, yeah, back Oracle in the day. was the rock stars. Yeah, it's still a meat grinder, but, you know. I, I, IBM was the greatest sales team of all time back in the day, but Oracle was the rock star. Yes. I work for Oracle so you can pick up chicks, and I realized that that is totally inappropriate to say today, but back, you know, in the early 1990s, yeah, no, I was looking to go into sales. That's, that's what we said, right? And, and. And so at the time that I became, I ended up becoming a financial advisor, I ended up going to work for Merrill Lynch. And I, um, cause I started getting recruited there. I, I'd been running a company, things happened. So I knew that I had to go do something different. And the reason that I didn't go the Oracle route was what I realized was if I was in a frontline sales role, I could win. 
because I could manage my manager and I was confident enough in my ability that if I ran it my way, I'd, I'd put the numbers up. And I know if you're in sales and you put the numbers up, you can, as long as it's legal, as long as it's not illegal, but at Oracle, it didn't even have to be immoral. It could be immoral, but I used to say as long right. as it's legal, moral, and ethical. <laughs> not at Oracle, could be illegal too. So. That's right. Yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> but, but so I knew as a frontline rep, I could make it. And then I also knew as a senior sales executive, I could be kick-ass. But what I realized was if I went to a comp- if I went to an or- Oracle or a company like Oracle, what I realized was is that I would get fired on my way to becoming a senior executive because I could set the strategy. I could set the directive. I could lone wolf it and make it happen. But what I would be really, really bad at is taking the process that someone else decided that I know is bullshit and executing it through other people. Executing it, right. Executing it through your bit. You're, you're, but but fundamentally, why, why do all of those people that you blame it on, why do they suck fundamentally? God. Why are they wrong? Why are they off? Uh, that's a, there is a, a whole topic for another podcast. Actually, I don't know that it is. Because they suck. Nope. They don't, actually. I disagree. Because we haven't changed the scoreboard. There you go. That's fair. Those are the metrics. Yeah. Everyone's running the same stupid waterfall. That's very fair. If you were to change the metrics... And, and no one's done the work up front to actually define what the roadmap is. See, if you go my route, now, by the way, I want you to know, and I've seen it, we measure meaningful conversations. You know what we didn't change fundamentally? Hmm. We didn't change the comp method. By the way, do you know why salespeople get paid commissions? It's to drive behavior? Nope. Not at all. Commissions are risk mitigation. Where did the sales job start? The sales job, the sales job used to not be a part of the company. The people, so sales started from a manufacturing base that needed distribution. So they went to third-party distribution and you got paid based on what you sold because you were a separate company. Right. And so you were hundred percent commission. Now, in some cases, those people became companies or they were companies. A lot of times you had, remember the days of the independent rep, those people, I don't even know. I don't even know if they really exist anymore. Right. There were companies that used to employ independent reps. One of my jobs when I worked at Hertz was part of the, one of the sales teams I managed, we had this group called star reps. They represented different small travel businesses. So Hertz actually had an independent rep business of, Right. And so the reason that we paid commissions was because I'm not going to pay you until you produce. I can't afford to pay you until you produce. Right. When we started hiring salespeople, well, okay, you start, I can't pay you. I can't pay you whatever you're being paid until you start to produce it. Right. What if you don't work? And by the way, the mishire rate of salespeople has always historically been very high. So, so commission started not because they incentivized people, but because that was the only way the, the selling organization 
right. could justify it. So it was risk mitigation. Then we started saying, oh, no, you should be compensated by it, right? Um, so, so A, the whole idea of commission is, is off. So, you know, of, of, of it being motivating. But so no, what, I, I, that piece of it, I totally, okay, I, right. I will, you will never hear me disagree on that. So, so we changed the scoreboard, but we have not fundamentally changed the comp. <laughs> they still earn the bulk of their variable compensation, which is really what I want to call it more. I don't like calling it incentive compensation. They are in the bulk of their variable com compensation on that outcome. So they still get paid on closing sales and they get a commission on closing sales, right? But they get fired because of a lack of meaningful conversations. Yeah. Now, will you get fired if we've got meaningful conversations? Oh, I should mention, by the way, the person who creates the meaningful conversation doesn't have to be the person who carries it through. Increasingly, the role that we call the SDR today will become our, our best sellers. And the role that we call the closer, that'll be the SDR. Instead of hiring somebody yeah, into the business to, to manage the first interaction, the entry-level training grant is going to be, okay, you manage it once these issues are defined. Right? And so the incentive comp, the, the variable comp, can still be weighted to the end. And by the way, when we change the metrics, the behavior changed like that. We didn't change the compensation. We changed the metric, right? It changed how I talked about things. It changed how we thought about things. It changed how reps allocated their time on opportunities. They spent a little bit more time on their email because they knew they needed to create a meaningful conversation. So it wasn't just a numbers game. It was a well, if I spend a little bit more time on this one, will I have a better chance of getting a conversation because the number that's going to make me a hero here is meaningful conversation, right? Now, it puts more onus on the manager because now that has, there has to be a process to manage, right? And most people haven't, haven't done that hard work, right? right. right? But, but it's the lack of the hard work that, that has created all these problems that then get manifested in shitty sales management, shitty sales design and shitty sales execution, right? And, and until we get to that core of changing the scoreboard, which, which will then naturally cause where the value expenditures get distributed will change, right? But until we change the scoreboard, we're just moving chairs around on the Titanic, right? Think about all of the initiatives that have happened in sales. You know, and John Barrows said it best when he was on the podcast, you know, 20 years ago, I came into the sales. They said sales and marketing is fucking broken. Today they say sales and marketing is fucking broken. And I'm pretty sure 20 years from now, they're going to say sales and marketing yeah, is fucking broken, fucking broken. Right? right? Because what's broken is the metrics is the underlying metrics of what we find to be important. And when the metrics change, it's going to be like Moneyball. We're going to look back today We'll be on on the podcast ten years from now, and we'll be talking about. You remember ten years ago when they used to, when this used to be how they did things, and people would be like, "You're lying. That's ridiculous. There's no way that that. There's no way we had our our senior person at the end. There's no way that on the thirty that there's no way that people on the last day of the month were trying to hit their number. That's what you're just." 
you're just exaggerating because because you're old, right? Because because that's how we look at batting average being more important than on base percentage. Yeah. I'm walking down. I was at spring training. I'm walking down the street. People are talking about what, what their OPS is. I'm like, I don't even think you know what OPS is, but they're talking about it. Right. And, and, and that's what happens when you change, like you ch- change, you know, the old saying, what you measure gets done. Do you know what the lesson is? Measure the right thing. Be really fucking careful what you measure. I think you should build an AI system that, one, the scoreboard, it's based off of the scoreboard changing. And build that process. Do you, do you have any idea? Conversation. Do you have any idea how much I want to punch you right now? <laughs> um, we've got the basis and the outline for that. Uh, we've got the basis and the outline that, that, that'll, that'll do that and more. I just need somebody that, that, that can do it. So anybody listening, if you can do that. So that's how sales is going to change in the next five years. What we, what we define as important will fundamentally change. And, and I'm going to tell you what, those of you that get to jump on it now, you will create a scalable advantage that, that your peers will never be able to catch up to. You'll be the Oakland A's with the limited budget. And you'll get, you'll get three years of, of kick-ass success where every one of your competitors will be like, I don't understand why they're doing so well. We're, we're better than them at this. We're better than them at this. I'm telling you. By the way, all, uh, you know what? Sammy, make a note. We got to talk about where sales get lost because by the way, sales get lost before the salesperson even shows up. And, and not for the reasons that people think. That'll be the focus of a future because I know we're way past time. So, dropping philosophy, history, history, everything today, Doug. It was good. Don't know much about history. You've been on this planet for quite some time. So. Don't know much trigonometry. Well, I know you don't know trigonometry, but you, know. you don't even know that. See, you don't even know the movie Animal House. <laughs> I do know the movie. You're a P.I.G. pig. Oh, yeah. yeah? What am I now? A zit. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thanks for joining Until us. Until next time. Of the Black Line Podcast.